This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. I'm excited to have Donald Hoffman join us to challenge our very sense of reality. His book, The Case Against Reality, asks if we can even trust our senses and reveals why our perceptions may be entirely questionable. In this episode, Donald explains how reality is an illusion, how we can recognize the truth of that, and how our senses guide our adaptive behavior. I hope you guys love listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. And if you do, please leave a review on our podcast. It really is the best way to support us so that we can help get the show out to more people just like you who are trying to reach their true human potential. I'm Tom Bilyeu, and welcome to Impact Theory. Donald Hoffman, welcome back to the show. Thanks a lot, Tom. It's great to be here. Dude, excited to have you back. So I'm obsessed with the matrix and the idea mm-hmm. that we're living in a false reality. Now, I know you don't believe that we are actually in a simulation, but do we recognize the truth of reality? Well, our best science tells us that space-time is not fundamental. This is the conclusion of both physics and evolution by natural selection. So the physicists tell us that space-time is doomed, it's not fundamental, and they're finding new structures um, beyond space-time, like the amplitudehedron, that actually make the math easier in space-time for the things they need to do. And then evolution by natural selection also agrees with the physicists that space-time is not fundamental. And let's, it's, let's explain that. So when okay. you say that space-time isn't fundamental, what do we mean exactly? In like the simplest, or we'll get into the geeky, like deep stuff in a second, but for the audience that hasn't heard you talk before, right. what does that mean? Well, we tend to think of space and time as the basic level of reality. Everything that could possibly be is inside space and has some, some time. The Big Bang was the start of it all, and who knows what the end will be, maybe a big crunch or just petering out in low entropy and low temperature, we don't know yet. But that, we think, or we thought, is the basis of all reality. Mm. So space and time are the, the basic stage on which all of reality plays out. And How can it most not it, be, though? That's the weird thing. Yeah, Does we, that mean that whatever is real, and we should probably give people your um, headset metaverse explanation, which speaks dear to my heart, but before we do that, does that mean that whatever is real is non-physical? Well, so the word real is a little slippery. So um, in some sense, my headache is real, right? Because it's a real experience. Mm-hmm. But um, it real in the sense that the physicists are talking about it, when they thought that space and time were fundamental, they were thinking that this was the fundamental ground of all possible realities. Um, like in a Newtonian universe and even in Einstein's point of view. Einstein thought that space and time was the grounding reality for everything. And now we realize that the four dimensions of space-time, or even uh, ten dimensions of string theory or something like that, is not going deep enough. There are structures entirely beyond space-time and entirely beyond quantum theory. 
So, so these new structures are not like little structures sitting inside at that small scale. I don't think we can get to structures yet. People are going to be super lost. So, okay. The idea of the headset, I think, is okay. a really core concept. So yeah. uh, somebody asked you once, like, in the future, we're going to start using different metaphors. What metaphors do you think we're going to use? And you said the metaverse. Right. As somebody trying to contribute to the metaverse, my ears perked up on that okay. one. Right. Right. Why will that become such a useful metaphor for, for this moment and how we perceive things? Right. Because the way that evolution speaks on this is it says that our perceptions of, of objects in space and time is really just like a virtual reality headset. It's there to help you play the game of life without knowing what's on the other side of the headset, what's on the other side, what, what's the hardware and software that's running the game. You don't have to know that to play the game. And in fact, if you were trying to play a game of like uh, Grand Theft Auto in virtual reality, and uh, you know you had to toggle millions of voltages per second to drive your car. Uh, you would lose Com when you were you know competing with someone who could just turn a nice little simple steering wheel and press on an artificial gas pedal. Mm. So evolution gave us senses that allow us to survive by hiding the truth and just telling us how to act. So as the Evolutionary theorists would say, our senses guide adaptive behavior. Why does natural selection as a theory predict that? Because I understand the theory, I guess, well enough at a high level, but mm -hmm. I never would have guessed that it actually says right. that it makes a prediction anyway that you, whatever is real, the only thing I can tell you that evolution has selected for is not that. Right. So where, like, would... Uh, is this something that Darwin himself saw in his theory, or would he be surprised? I think Darwin would be surprised. And in fact, um, many um, evolutionary theorists today are surprised. And, and so it, how do we know this isn't just a kooky interpretation of natural selection by Donald Hoffman? Exactly. So the, the way we pursue this is it turns out that Darwin's theory has been turned into a mathematically precise theory. It's called evolutionary game theory. So John Maynard Smith started that in, in the 1970s. And so we now have, in, instead of, you know, Darwin's theory, which is, you know, it's imprecise in the sense that it's not a mathematical model. Mm. Evolutionary game theory, evolutionary graph theory are mathematically precise. So we can now prove theorems and we can ask technical questions. So what is the probability that natural selection would shape any sensory system of any organism to reveal any true structures of objective reality? That's a clean technical question. And it turns out that evolutionary game theory is precise enough to address that question. And okay, so I know I've gotten hung up on that a lot, and I think for people of my cognitive ability, we will have to accept that as the miracle of this conversation, otherwise we'll derail on that, because I don't understand how his theory can be turned into a math equation, and I worry that for you to explain it to me would take uh, an entire semester and cause me to tear my hair out. But so if we can accept, unless you're thinking, it looks like you may I have a way to explain it. I can give you a hint. It. I okay. can give a little hint. It's when we say evolutionary game theory, mm -hmm. it really, think about game theory. How do you play Monopoly and win? 
How do you play various games? So it turns out you can look at different strategies that someone might have. You know, I'm going to go for park place. I'm going to go for boardwalk. I'm going to try to, there's all different strategies. And you can then write down mathematically, okay, if you take this strategy, what is the probability that you will do well against someone who's taking this other strategy? And it's all about most offspring? And, and the, so the strategies are ways to survive long enough to reproduce. And so you can look at different strategies for playing the game of life. So, for example, some organisms will have millions or thousands of offspring. Mm. And, but they don't care about the offspring. Most of them will die. But if 1% of them make it, you're good. Humans tend to have just a couple, a handful of offspring, and we put a lot of effort into them. So those are different strategies. And so as you look, so some uh, strategies, for example, in perception. Humans really have focused in our evolution on vision and, a little, and, and hearing and less on smell and, and taste and so forth. Other organisms f focus on things that we don't even have, like echolocation mm -hmm. in bats. So different organisms will take different strategies. The game of life is how do I live long enough to reproduce? And how do I raise my offspring to maturity? No, do, I, do I just make lots of them and let them fend for themselves? And most of them die, but a fraction will make it. Or do I make just a few of them and really help them for 20 or 30 years until they can go on their own? Or more these days. Or more of those days. So by, from evolutionary game theory's perspective, what is the most successful creature on planet Earth? Um, pro well, probably bacteria. Um, Interesting, right? Well, they, yeah. they, there, there's a yeah. lot more bacteria than wow, there are good answer. Uh, than us, and and maybe viruses if they're more. So from that point of view, um, right? It, the 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 winner is the one who um, per, you know, survives long enough to reproduce and reproduces for a long period of time. And you know, cyanobacteria have been around for billions of years. So you know, they're they're certainly candidates. I'm not saying that they're the final answer, but right. that kind of thing would be. Humans are you know relative newcomers, and I, I actually really like the theory that humans are bacteria's way of moving around, yeah. which is pretty interesting. When you think that we're outnumbered by the right, bacteria right. in our guts, on our skin, right. all of that stuff, it's pretty interesting. I should right. have guessed that answer, but I didn't. But that makes a lot of sense. Right, right. So so this gives you the idea of when you're playing a game. There's lots of strategies, especially in a complicated game, there's lots of strategies. And it's not that there's going to be one best strategy. It's rather that if, so, you know, if Tom is using this strategy, what, should, what strategy should I use to counter Tom's strategy? Mm. And, and so forth. Same thing in business, right? It depends on who your competition is, yeah. what strategies you're going to take. And what is the govern, governing system and so forth, like with the laws and so forth. That, that will all determine your strategy. So you can use game theory and turn it into a tool for studying evolution as a game where your bacteria are trying to play the game of life one way, humans are playing the game of life another way. Every different organism, every different plant mm. is playing the game of life with a different kind of strategy. That's really interesting. It's funny. I, I, this is the third time I've interviewed you, and I've never pushed on this because there was something about I couldn't wrap my brain around it, so I'm glad you took the time. Yeah. Uh, what's fascinating to me is every species has its own umwelt, yes, right. which is a really fascinating concept. So I looked this up once, and every time I say this stat, I think I must be wrong because it just seems way too far off. But humans are able to perceive 0.0035% of the uh, electromagnetic spectrum. 
And I was like, how is that possible? That's so, like every everything that we see and think of as the, the known world is 0.0035%. Right. That is like vanishingly small. Exactly right. So our, our window on the, on the world is trivial mm. compared to what could in principle be available. And so the, the question that you can then ask in a technical fashion is, what is the probability that a strategy of seeing truth, true structures about objective reality, would, would that strategy help you to survive long enough to raise kids? Mm. And so we can ask that as a technical question. Evolution has the tools to do that. And the key concept is something called a fitness payoff. So it's fitness payoff is like, if you're playing a game, there's a certain way that you get points in the game. If you're playing a video game, right, you have to shoot things down or avoid getting hit and to get points. And if you get enough points, you get to the next level of the game. Well, fitness payoffs, um, if you get enough fitness payoffs, what that corresponds to is you're surviving long enough to reproduce and you don't go to the next level of the game, but your offspring and your DNA in your offspring go to the next level of the game. So here's the, here's the big idea. We can ask these fitness payoff functions that govern our evolution. They do depend on whatever the world is and the world structure. So they do depend on the world. They depend on the organism. You know, what's fit for me is not fit for a benthic fish. Being 5,000 meters under the water would kill me. It's just what the benthic fish wants. So, so the fitness payoffs depend on the true structure of the world. It depends on the organism, you know, Hoffman versus a fish, and the, um, the action, feeding, fighting, fleeing, and mating, and, and so forth. And you can then ask, what is the probability? And this is, now, this is the key technical question. What is the probability that a, a randomly chosen fitness payoff function that's governing my evolution has information about the true structure of the world? Mm. Right? Because it's that fitness, evolution tells us those fitness payoffs are what determine how your senses are going to evolve. They're so going what's to- the base assumption there that, the, that reality is so complex? In fact, I want to press, I want to take a second to really elucidate the example you gave about Grand Theft Auto, which I think is so brilliant. What's actually happening in Grand Theft Auto is um, electrical currents are toggling on and off gates on the computer and that somehow makes things happen on your screen that you can interact with and score points and all that. Right. But at, like, if you look at a chip, it is so complicated that uh, trying to like zap electrodes in the right order, it, literally impossible. Right. And so everything that we, we as the average non-computer programmer think of as a computer is really just the GUI. It's the interface. And so you're there at a really, abs- really abstracted level. It is so abstract as to be nonsensical compared to what's actually happening at the electrical communication level with the machinery itself sending signals to your TV. Exactly. And if real life has that same level of complexity, then I get why it would need to be so abstracted that as to be just nonsensical compared to what reality really is. Something I think breaks in people's intuition. It certainly breaks in my intuition when I think though that there has to be some sort of mapping. So the example that you've said many times, which I think is really on point is 
Uh, if people are going to make fun of you, what they will say is, oh, you don't think any of this is real? Go ahead and step in front of that train right, and right, see if right. it kills you. Right. And of course, it's going to. So the representation of the train is pointing at something that right. will change your state from alive to dead. That's right. Now, whether all of that is is so again, abstracted from what's actually happening at a electrical level. I don't even know what to liken it to. Um, but nonetheless, stepping in front of a train will flip you from alive to dead, whatever that means in right. the, the right. underlying reality. So do you think at all about like, do you care what it's mapping to? Or are you just like, eh, it doesn't matter. It's too complicated. We're not there yet. Well, I do care. And that's why I'm interested in this particular theorem, right? Because my interest is, I'm seeing a world of space and time and objects with colors and shapes and motions. How is, is that the true world? Is that the, the true structure of objective reality? Or is this as divorced from reality? Is what we're seeing as divorced from the fundamental reality as my Grand Theft Auto VR headset is from the voltages inside the supercomputer that's running it? Mm. That's, the, that's the simple question, right? So when I talk about things outside of space-time, it's just like, suppose someone had played Grand Theft Auto since they were one day old, and their parents had left them in a headset their whole life. And when they're 25, the parents say, guess what? You've been in a headset your whole life. And, and that, that person probably can't even, what could possibly be outside of my headset? I've lived my whole life inside this headset. And you pull it off and you realize, oh wow, there's a whole world that's entirely outside of what you're in. That's the question we're asking. Has, has evolution shaped us with just a little headset, a VR headset, that, that guides adaptive behavior but shows us none of objective reality? That's, that's the technical question. And the answer is, is very, very clear. The probability is one that we don't see the truth at all. Meaning 100%. 100%. Okay, so if the probability is 100% that you are seeing a very false version, right. the, the thing that that seems to predict to me is that the underlying reality is so complicated that at least in this form... I don't know how else to refer to that. In this form, it would, with our umwelt, our ability to process data, whatever, it would not make sense to try to um, to deal with the reality. That it's far more efficient to create an abstraction layer. But if underlying reality is dead simple, that doesn't seem like it would hold true. So do we just presume that there is extreme complexity? Well, it turns out that the... Extreme complexity isn't necessary for this theorem to be true. Interesting. Why would you need such an elaborate abstraction if it isn't complicated? Well, so it turns out when you actually just look at the math. So suppose the world has some number of states, a billion states or a or hundred states, whatever it might. So there's some number of states in the world. And you have some number of states of perception. I can see green, red. There's lots of things I can see. When you just do a simple count, look at all the possible functions from the states of the world to the states of my perception, you just count them. So it doesn't, the world doesn't have to be complicated. It could have just you know, 100 points or 1,000 points. When you count those, all the functions in, that are the fitness functions and ask how many of those functions actually contain information about the structures in the, in the world, it turns out that very quickly the proportion goes to zero. It's just, it's, it, so even if the structure isn't that complicated, maybe there's only one structure in the world Mm -hmm. And that's all it has, like a total order. Something, you know, one is less than two, is less than three, is less. What is the probability that that total order, so the world could be very simple. It only has one simple structure, total order. 
and and the world only has you know maybe you know, a million states, so it's not a very complicated world. A million states. What is the probability that um, the fitness payoff functions that govern my my evolution would preserve the total order information? Would would actually be able to tell me about the total order? And the math is quite simple, and the answer is zero. But that has to predict something, uh, like. So when, when I make mm-hmm. the base assumption that it's, it's because it is too complex. So to give people, I want to start putting definitions of some of these words. So when sure. you say state, let's say lights on, lights off. So sure. we all live where Earth has two states. The sun is up, the sun is down. That's one. Uh, right. Temperature would be another state. Could be hot, could be cold. Right. Uh, barometric pressure could be high, could be low. Could be right. wet, could be dry. Like we can just, so there's a lot of different things. And exactly. so to your point about the fish, they're dealing with massive pressures. Right, if right. they were to come up where there's no pressure, they would disintegrate or not be able to move right. or whatever, just like we crush down to the, you know, like a tiny can. So yeah, they would explode and we would crush. Right, exactly. exactly. Right, right. So, okay, that when you say states, mm-hmm. that's one example. Exactly I right. don't understand how if everything were static, it were one state, that we would need an abstraction layer to navigate it more effectively than somebody that sees objective reality. So now I'm going to use an example to further illustrate what I mean. I'm going to use an example you gave me the first time. You cannot imagine how many times I've quoted you on this. Okay. You said, uh, Tom, you have to understand that objective reality isn't like, oh, here's a table and it's got this nice swirly grain pattern. It's the number of photons reflecting off of that desk and the, the amount of reflectivity and all that. Now, irony of ironies, as I have started working in the metaverse, you realize how complicated the visual world is. The, the 0.0035% of the right, visual right. spectrum that we actually see is insanely complicated to replicate. Right, right. Donald, right, right. It, it's the hardest thing I've done in my life. It's crazy. And I don't even have to fully understand it. I just have to guide the team that understands it. Anyway, right. when you said that, I was like, whoa, right. what reality is, is very different than how I experience it. So cool, complex. Right. So now I get why the math works out. Right. But if it isn't complex, so you don't seem to be struggling with this. What is it that you understand that I don't, or what is your base assumption right. that's right. different than mine that makes it make sense to you that to achieve maximum fitness payoff, you would 100% not retain elements of reality? Right. So, so first, I, I don't deny that I, I suspect that reality is very complicated. So, so my, but my that point isn't necessary. But that's for not this necessary for this. That's right. It's just simply accounting things. So if you if you look at all the functions from one set to another set, like so, I have functions. For, say I have numbers one through ten, and that's my base set, and I'm going to map them into numbers one through ten. So I can map one to three and two to five and so forth. Mm-hmm. So you know, if you just do, okay, you, if you think about that problem, you, you, I could probably figure, okay, how many different functions are there, right? So you can write, the, write down all. Now you can say, okay, how many of those functions have the property that, um, you know, they preserve that one is less than two is less than three and less than four. How many of them scramble that order? How many preserve that order? How many scramble? How many contain information about the one less, less than two, less than three, less than four? So this is called combinatorics. It's a branch of mathematics. Oh, I'm unfortunately all too aware of it because of NFTs. Yes. Which require you to understand this because you're making, 
you have, to your point, and maybe this is what you're saying, and so maybe I actually now am understanding it. Okay. Let me walk you through sure, what sure. we had to discover in NFTs. Okay, so you create all these traits, right. all these categories, I should say, right. and then within each category, you have maybe 10 possible eyebrows that it could be, eyeball right. types, hairstyles, right. uh, facial hair, so on and so forth. That outputs, let's say, 2 billion right. potential permutations. Exactly right. But you want to maintain a distribution in the 10,000 that you're actually going to show. So we were all trying to do the math. We're working it out. And I'm like, there's no way it's as simple. No. There's some problem. And then we showed it to physicists and they fell out laughing. And they're like, yeah, it's not that simple. And so they're right. like, for you to maintain the exactly right. the um, the percentage likelihood to get gold eyes, let's say, right, right. out of your 2 billion combinations, they're like, you have to force it down into this thing, which they called the combinatorial or whatever. And so yeah, I was like, right. okay. And so that's, that really is the point here that even though I agree with you that the universe is probably, the real universe, whatever it is, is very complicated. I, I believe that. Combinatorics blow up so quickly Got it. By the time you just get to a few hundred elements, you know, that as you found, the thing, the explosion of possibilities is so great that when they ask how many of those possible fitness functions would actually be so special that they contain information about the structure of where they mm. came from out of all of the possible fitness functions that so were- So it's not an overly complicated world, it's just the number of potential mapping points and combinations. Exactly right. Very because, interesting. Because evolutionary theory puts no restriction on the fitness payoff functions. Any possible- I mean, there could be as many as you can imagine. And there's no restriction. There's no restriction the that says they have to show you the truth. That's not part of the theory. Right. So until so and and by the way no one knows how to put that into the theory right so i mean to say that it requires that only the fitness functions that preserve the truth would be a major revision to evolutionary theory it would, it would be unrecognizable hmm. so so when you look then and say okay every fitness payoff function is is equal likely as any other fitness payoff function they're all on equal footing and then you count the ones that actually have information about the truth they go to zero probability right. in fast order. Now, there is one I should bring out. There's um, a group at Yale that has recently published a paper that's trying to um, push back on this. And what they say is if you have, say, a, a bunch of, like thousands of fitness path functions, they're all radically different. Then they say that you'll be forced to, um, to go to the truth. And, and they, the, the argument that they make is, that if our high-level cognitions, our beliefs, our goals, and so forth, are not going to interfere with our perceptions, they claim that then our perceptions have to map, have a single mapping from the state of the world into the state of our senses. It has to be a single mapping. You can't have multiple. So, <clears throat> because one thing I could do with a lot of fitness functions is say, well, this fitness function is different from that one, so I will do this kind of mapping from the world into my senses with this fitness payoff function, then I'll do another mapping with this fitness payoff function. And, and they say, you know, if you're going to have what we call um, cognitive impenetrability, so what you believe cognitively cannot affect um, what you see. Okay, that's, that's the argument. Then you must have only one mapping. Well, it, it, so that's their assumption. So hold on, let me make sure I understand sure. that. So sure. they're saying that 
basically so that your delusions don't create the exterior world or at least your perception of it, you have to have this mapping so that you're actually detecting and seeing what is real. They're, they're saying that if what you believe mm-hmm. doesn't affect your senses in a fundamental way, yep. then they claim that that entails that you can only have one mapping from the world, the fitness, the, the, the mapping of your senses from the, whatever the world is into what, what you're seeing, the colors and the shapes and so forth. There, there can only be one map um, that, that holds regardless of what the fitness payoff functions. That was their claim. So, and, and the only reason I bring this up is because this is a recently published paper. The, the claim is false. It, it's, it's trivial to show counterexamples. Their, their fundamental claim is false. Please do as a way just to make sure that I actually understand what they're saying. Because this sounds like what they're trying to protect against is um, hallucinations basically becoming subjectively real. Right. So, so I actually think that it's true probably to a large extent that what we believe does not really affect fundamentally what we see. So technical term we use, the geek term is cognitive impenetrability of perception. Mm-hmm. That's what the philosophers of science will talk about and cognitive scientists. That are, are, and you can think about, scientists might like this because they'll say, look, we want to use our senses in our experiments. I want to, my theory makes a prediction. I have to go look and see if the prediction is true. Well, if my theory that I'm holding would change what I see, then science isn't going to really be objective, right? I mean, if I believe this theory and it changes how I see the data, then I might just see the data that confirms the theory and I can't escape. So that's why there's the philosophy of science has been very interested in this question. Are our high-level theoretical beliefs and just our beliefs as everyday people, do they get in there and somehow fundamentally affect how we see the world? And there is a... You know, a, a Sort of a way you could say they, you know, I, the way I believe things does change my world, but not. They don't change like the color I see right. or the three-dimensional structure of the cube here that I'm seeing. I mean, they, they might change it in some way, but but not fundamentally like that. So that's the that's the question, and so it's it's trivial. I mean, so when the group at Yale makes this point that you know if you have lots of different fitness payoff functions and you don't have your high-level beliefs interfering with the process of perception, then you can only have one, one map from the world into your senses. And of course, they, they don't prove that. They, they just state it without proof. Mm. And so it's, it's trivially false. We, we have made counterexamples. It's very, very easy to make counterexamples. I can design a system in which I have, say, two fitness payoff functions. And I, I use one fitness payoff function to make one map from the world into uh, my perceptions, use the other fitness function to make another map. and if I have a system that has no high-level beliefs, then the high-level beliefs aren't interfering with it. There's a counterexample right there. No cognitive penetration of perception, multiple maps. But then I can add beliefs and say, I know I can have beliefs there as long as they don't interfere with this mapping here. I could have two, ma- two maps. Why not? So it's, they're, they're, the guys, that, the, the group at Yale, they're brilliant experimentalists. And you know, one of them is a, a really good friend of, of one of my collaborators. I mean, they were postdocs at MIT together and so forth. So they're brilliant experimentalists, but the fundamental assumption that they're making is just trivially false. And so, so then what, how do we see this in our perceptions? The way we see it in our perceptions is we have probably hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of fitness payoff functions that are governing our, be, our behavior. So what do we do with all that complexity? What we do is we group the fitness payoff functions into groups 
that are similar. And we take the, and we make simple little data structures out of them. And those data structures are what we call objects. So this object is good for drinking. Can you, what, what is a data structure? When you say that it's an object, meaning my mind groups it so that I can differentiate the cup from the coaster from the desk? What I'm saying is we're making all this stuff up as a simple way to represent the fitnesses, fitness payoffs and how to get them. So, so for example, in, when you're playing Grand Theft Auto, mm-hmm. and you're, you're playing a game, um, if you looked inside the supercomputer, there, there is no red Porsche, there is no steering wheel, there is no gas pedal. In some sense, those are what I call simple data structures. Mm. They're coding for you know, the gas pedal and pushing on the gas pedal is coding for who knows, countless millions of voltage changes happening in, in, in exactly the right sequence in the computer. I have this trivial data structure, gas pedal, push on it, that triggers this whole other thing that I don't want to know about. It's really too complicated. So that's what I mean by these simplifying data structures. My steering wheel is this simple data structure that I can use to interact with who knows how many billions or trillions of voltages and make them do exactly the right sequence in the right order. Could I say representation instead of data structure? Sure, absolutely. Okay. Data structure is a computer science term, so computer scientists would, would be very happy with that, but, but representation is, is perfectly good. And so the idea then is what evolution has done from an evolutionary point of view is it takes all these fitness payoff functions that govern us, that govern our our survival and that we need to respect in order to play the game of life. And we organize them. So an apple is, is an object. It's a representation of a bunch of fitness payoffs. For example, the apple, if I'm interested in mating, apple's no good. If I'm interested in eating, great. If I'm interested in a weapon, so-so. I mean, I could throw it at someone's head, but it's not going to do much damage. You know, if I'm, you know, so there's, if, but if I have a sword, a sword, well, for, for mating, no good. For eating, not really. I mean, I could use it to cut a coconut in half, but, but I, can't eat the, I can't eat the sword. For fighting, great, but not if you're fighting against a, you know, a gun mm-hmm. and, and things like that. So every object, and we can recognize, I would say, on the order of 30 or 40,000 different objects, basic kinds of objects. So what that indicates is that evolution has taken all these hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of fitness payoff functions, and it's not making one map from the world into our senses. It's making a bunch of different maps, and those different maps are what we call objects. And our high-level cognition, all it does is, I'm hungry. Okay, well, I won't be looking for tables. I won't be looking for the moon. I'll be looking for apples and bananas and things like that. Those data structures, those representations that have high fitness payoffs for, for the action of eating. And so visual attention, paying attention to different objects, is our way of switching from this representation of fitness payoffs to this representation of fitness payoffs as I need to be able to to do to survive long enough to reproduce. And so that's, so, so I, I, this sort of technical, but it's, the reason I bring it out is because you know, this is brand new. It, it's gotten you know, a lot of attention from Yale. And so it's an important thing from the scientific side to, to really lay to rest that, that you know, there's not one mapping that's required from the world into our senses by evolution, even if we assume that uh, our, our beliefs don't interfere with our 
cognition, our cognitions don't interfere with our perceptions. That doesn't entail that we have to have one mapping. Um, it's just a false assumption. Once you let go of that false assumption, then you are opened up to realize that objects, every object, is just a data structure coding for a whole group of fitness payoffs. And that's how evolution deals with this. If you want a fighting chance against the competition, you need to be using the best technology and platforms in the world like Shopify. For whatever and wherever you want to sell, from launching to going international, Shopify is the global commerce platform that will help you grow at every stage of your business. Shopify is your all-in-one platform to quickly and efficiently take your business to the next level. Now, I love everything about Shopify because it makes it so easy for you to start, run, and grow your business. It didn't used to be this easy. I'm telling you back in the day, it was a lot harder. I'm so jealous. Shopify powers more than 10% of all US e-commerce because businesses that want to grow quickly and efficiently choose Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash impact, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash impact now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash impact. If getting your hands dirty and taking good care of your car or cars is a passion of yours, then eBay Motors is here for the ride because I'm sure you remember when you first saw the potential in that beauty. And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly with eBay Motors. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Okay, so the reason that I find this so endlessly fascinating is I... Um, in trying, the whole reason I stepped in front of the camera in the first place was I made a very profound change in my life and I thought, hey, mm. anybody can do this, but it really is about reframing the world. So mm. recoding, re coming up with new references or seeing the cup in a different light, whatever. So it's interesting. So the idea of our beliefs don't influence our cognition or influence the mapping to the, um, the real world it's probably only at the margins. It's pretty minor, as you said, but I think that there is a lot of um, difference in outcome in the game of life as sure. we think about it in a modern context, depending on how you code things. But I've, I've struggled with this. So at one point I was going to write a book and I was working with a ghostwriter and I was saying like, it, it doesn't matter what's true. All that matters is that it's effective and that the way that you view the world is moving you towards your goals. And this was like at the height of Trump. And the ghostwriter was like, yo, I'm not writing that. And she was like, you need to tell me that you don't believe in like a post-truth world. And I was like, that's interesting because no, I don't mean just lie and make things up. But what is guiding my decision making isn't a quest for what's true. It's a quest for what works. And so as I think about fitness payoffs, I get that. I'm going to put a pin in the following for a second. When I hear you talk, it feels like 
you think the level of abstraction is is like being in a, a game headset versus what the game machine is doing itself. That That is so different. Right. And so we'll get to that in a minute because that's right. what we're talking about. But even like at the layer of, okay, I'm, I've got my headset on, I'm locked in, mm-hmm. like even there, how you can influence things by how you perceive them is interesting. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we're living in a moment where saying post-truth triggers a lot of things. I want to strip all that away, right. but get people to focus on, because really, really, truly in life, what you're talking about with fitness payoffs is how people should look at their own belief system of like, okay, I believe the, the way that I tell people to judge what is true is what is the thing that allows you to better predict the outcome of your actions? Mm-hmm. And so if I believe in gravity, that allows me to better predict how to handle this cup, right? Because if I hold it over here and let go and expect it to stay there, I'm going to be very disappointed when it crashes to the floor. And so believing in gravity, even if it's fake, right. is very useful, mm-hmm. Stepping on the gas pedal, even if there really is no Porsche, even if there really is no gas pedal, if I'm in the game, like just assuming that that's how it works, even though it isn't true, it's a total abstraction, it's going to help you get towards your goal if your goal is to win that game. So all of that is very interesting. I do think that we can even take something like synesthesia, Mm -hmm. where, would you say that they're intentionally um, using cognition? No. But their no. perception is like, I don't know if you know who Dave Grohl is, but uh, drummer no. for Nirvana, lead singer okay. of Foo Fighters. And he is a synesthete of his own um, claim, no, right. own admission, yeah. And he said that, I forget if he sees or shapes, I think there might be shapes and for him. And he said that's why it's so easy for him to remember songs because they have these literal shapes. And so he just has to remember the sequence of the shapes and he can play the song. And that, I mean, that really has an impact. He's able to remember things that I wouldn't be able to remember, for instance, because his perception is being influenced by the way that his brain processes data. So for whatever reason, two areas of his brain trigger when he hears something, whereas in mine, only one triggers. And... So that to me, when I, again, going back to why I find this so interesting, that to me says, hey, I don't know how much of what you're perceiving is real, but I know that there are consequences to how you categorize. So your idea of data structures is going to matter a lot. And so if you can categorize something as shapes and sound, it's going to be easier to remember. If you categorize, like for instance, the thing I'm always trying to get people to understand is, If you have what I call the only belief that matters, that you can, if you put time and energy into getting better at something, you actually will get better. If you believe that, then you'll pursue improvement. If you don't believe that, then you won't because it wouldn't make any sense. So you miss out on fitness payoffs based on your cognitive assessment of how the world works. So all of that's fascinating. Okay. Absolutely. And important to understand. Mm -hmm. Where my brain breaks Mm -hmm. with your thesis is how different what you perceive is and what the world is like. And I know, and this is where it gets hard because I think you would say, we don't know what's under space time. Right. But what's your best guess? Like as we strip away this layer, and this might be the time to talk about consciousness, but I don't want to lead the witness. Right. What, right. what do you, if it isn't space time, 
Stab right. in the dark for me. What the hell is it? Well, I'll tell you what the physicists are doing on this, because the physicists are the ones who are saying space-time is not fundamental. So it's there, it's a pointer, it's a representation, it's a data structure. It's a data structure to something deeper. That's but right. it's, it happens to be the human brain, which is already a data structure. You're already exactly. making that up. Exactly right. But that data structure represents things through space-time. Exactly right. That's our headset. Space-time is just our headset. And it only goes down to the, is that the Planck length? I always yes. hear you quote a, a, a size. Planck length is 10 to the minus 33 centimeters. So that is what you're quoting. Right, exactly. And that's the smallest thing that we can measure? Yeah, that's the smallest thing. That's the smallest scale at which space-time has any operational meaning. If you try to go smaller, space-time ceases to make any operational sense at all. Because gravity insists that below that things have condensed to too fine of a point, it becomes a black hole? Yeah, exactly right. You, you create a black hole. Okay. So, so, and if you think about it... And we know that isn't true? Like, why can't that just be true? Smaller than that is a black hole. Yay. Yeah, we, well, we know, it's, we, we know that at, at the Planck scale, you, you, um, space-time stops and you get, you, you get black holes. So what's the problem? Well, black hole is a singularity. It means we don't know what's happening. So you get infinities popping up. Um, mm -hmm. But black holes are real, right? They're, they're real. As a data structure. They're, they're, <laughs> they're, they're real stopping points in our understanding. But they're in the universe. Well, they're... Um, I know this there gets complicated because the universe is a representation. Ah. Oh, yeah. So, and, and, so, so where I want to start Penrose and others have been that. studying the properties of black holes, right? Mm -hmm. Penrose won the Nobel Prize very recently for his, his wonderful work on black holes. And so there's a lot of work that's being done to understand the properties of black holes. For example, the amount of information you can store in a black hole doesn't depend on its volume, only the surface area. Yeah, I don't understand that. Yeah, right. Right. This is... It, it's very, very strange, but that turns out to be true in everyday space. The amount of information that you can store in this volume here is not dependent on the volume. It depends on the surface, the surface area. That's the universe we live on. It's, 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 so that's led people to this holographic kind of idea. Oh, every word out of your mouth. I'm like, we actually are in a simulation. We haven't right, even right. talked about the right. non-local, things are not locally real. Right, we'll right, get right. to that. Because yeah, that's the new Nobel Prize this year. Which right. is insane and literally right. just says you're in a simulation and it's the same as rendering. And right. when you look at right. something, it renders. When you look away, it, it doesn't. And we can prove it mathematically. Right. Um, yeah. That's right. Way too fascinating. We'll get to that. But first, I want to understand, like, black holes, the word real gets very slippery in this conversation. Right. But black holes are observable. Yes, we talked about So it seems picture, consistent. Right. So, so the idea is that... The notion of space-time at, like, instead of 10 to the minus 33 centimeters, say 10 to the minus 40 centimeters, what would that mean? It does, it has no meaning. It has, there's nothing you can do with it. So, so black holes are fine. They're, they're, they're objects there that are at the end point of what space-time can do. But if we say, but I thought space-time was fundamental. That means I should be able to talk about what's happening at 10 to the minus 50 centimeters. And, 10 to, and you just cannot. There's no operational meaning. And in that sense... So you're saying whatever is fundamental will be able to tell you exactly what's happening inside of a black hole. Well, or, or it will tell you that this whole framework in which black holes appear is the wrong framework. <laughs> and thusly, black holes are just a data structure for something else that is describable once you get outside once of space-time. Space and, and, you know, 
it's hard for us to think outside of space time. Like, the yeah, can kid. we can we beat this point to death for a second? Because sure. this one was a a breakthrough for me when I realized I always thought of the Planck Planck length as like so infinitesimally small that like we should all be in awe. And you're like, like that space time breaks down that early is just ridiculous. And I was like, okay, that's a different frame of reference. Yeah, it's 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 a, a very shallow data structure. If it was ten to the minus thirty three trillion centimeters that it broke down, I'd be, I'd be impressed. 10 to the minus 33, we got cheated. This is a really shallow data structure. It's only four dimensions. I can't even imagine something in five dimensions. I can't even imagine a new color that I've never seen before. Mm. So, so we've been given this really, we, we think that we're, in many cases, we think we're the epitome of intelligence and the, the, the smartest thing in the universe. My, my feeling is we've been shortchanged. Really shallow data structure, only three dimensions of space, one dimension of time. We got a cheap headset. And so when, <laughs> that's a fun way to say it, when data breaks down like that, right. what, so uh, I always forget the guy's name, so I wrote it down, but Nima Arkani Hamed. Right, right. So I've heard you talk about him a lot, so I started doing some research on him. And if I'm understanding what he's saying correctly, is basically when you have a data structure that falls apart that early, right. which was, a, again, a total reframe for me, because I thought of that as like, oh my God. Right. Uh, but apparently, when you understand this better, you realize that's, that's a pretty early tap out. Right. So when a right. data structure falls right. apart that early, that, that tells you that it's proximal, right. which I'm interpreting as a, it's the finger pointing at the moon, it is not the moon itself. Exactly. And so now you know you're looking at a pointer. Right. And so that seems to be the thing that his whole case rests on for uh, space-time being doomed. That if your data structure falls apart that early, you know there's no way this is the fundamental thing. That's one of the big pointers. The other big pointer, a couple other big pointers he gives is that when you let go of space-time and you start computing particle interactions, like two gluons hit each other and four gluons go spraying out, the kind of thing that happens at the Large Hadron Collider mm. all the time. If you compute it inside of space-time, that one I mentioned, two gluons in, four gluons out, hundreds of pages of algebra for one interaction. Why is it so complicated? Because it's the wrong data structure. It's an ugly, nasty data structure. And the thing that you're doing the algebra on is in what way they scatter? Inside space-time. You have to do, to make all the math work out, you have to have these Feynman diagrams with virtual particles. Because people are trying to, they're trying to say, okay, a theory of everything Right. which you are saying does not exist and will never exist, but right. we'll get to that later. Yeah, right. uh, so if there were a theory of everything, though, we should be able to know everything so finely that I can tell you, oh, if they collide at this energy with this directionality, it will scatter exactly like this. Yeah, with these probabilities. You, you, have, you have probabilities of their, of their scattering. Okay, right. and so they're just like, oh my God, it's a dizzying amount of math. That's right. If until, you do it, until you let go of space-time. And then that one that I mentioned, two gluons in, four gluons out, it's one term. You can compute it by hand. It's like when they hit, there'll be a diamond. Yeah. Because well, you need to start talking in shapes, right? Well, yeah. So, so it's a shape beyond space-time whose volumes... Oh. So, yeah, it's a shape outside of space-time, outside of our headset. And the volumes of this shape actually tell you the probabilities of the various kinds of particle interactions. Okay, so... And so it turns billions of terms into a handful of terms. And it shows you new symmetries. That's what the physicists really love. It's, it's simpler math, which is great. 
And then all of a sudden you see new symmetries that mm -hmm. you can't see in space-time. Okay, I'm gonna try to draw an analogy, which is already gonna break things, but let me see how close sure. I get. You're in Grand Theft Auto. Right. You step on the gas and you go forward. And we're just like, oh my, the math to predict in what way the car is gonna move when you step on the gas pedal is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But if we were to be actually looking at the electrical pattern that's stepping on the gas, which would be pressing buttons on your controller uh, in a certain context, if we understood that there's a pattern outside of the headset, so in the, the PlayStation or the Xbox, there's an electrical pattern inside of that that looks so if you know chess, and I don't, but I'm familiar with the, the idea of chunking. Mm -hmm. So apparently right. what chess masters do is they're not looking at the individual pieces on the board, they just know the patterns. So they're like, oh, right. that image of where the pieces are in this order, that's this setup. So they've chunked the whole board into right. like, oh, I know where we're at in the game and I know what the right next move is. So basically what you're saying is you step on the gas and it gives you an image of a shape of electrical patterns mm -hmm. outside of the headset. If that's what you're saying, I at least understand. I, I don't, I could not give you the math or any of that, but I get like this representation, this data structure, which you think of as being real, stepping on the gas and the red Porsche goes, is actually this chunk of electrical impulses if we think of it as a shape or a pattern or a rhythm or however we're going to think of it. Is that what we're saying? That, that could be a helpful metaphor. And I've got another metaphor that may also try to help people on because that's an important point that you're raising. So suppose, here, here's another way to think about this. Suppose that I'm looking at a video and I'm seeing all these pixels and the pixels are moving in really complicated ways. You know, there's the red pixels and green pixels and light pixels and dark. And I'm just, and, and I've, and I know that there's something interesting going on, and so I, I write down all these equations for the motions of these pixels. And, but, but someone says, you know what? There is just this, I've got this little um, Rubik's Cube, and I'm, all I'm doing is rotating a Rubik's Cube, and, but, but you're only seeing the pixel projection. of. If you just could see this 3D object, you would realize how simple it is. Mm. But when you only see the pixels and see all the... Then it's, oh man, I gotta, I've got to model all the pixels moving on my screen. How do I do that? Well, if you can just let go of the screen, behind it, there's this unified geometric object, the Rubik's Cube. And if you just see, oh, it just rotates rigidly. That's, and that rigid rotation is the only motion I need. It's a rotation. Here, I have to look at all the pixels. This pixel so moving this way. So I'm paying attention to the dots rather than the, the shape. Space-time is paying attention to the dots. <laughs> right. So in space-time, we're, we're stuck on the video screen, and we're trying mm. to model all the pixels moving around the video screen. And what the physicists have said, if you let go of the video screen, take it off, you see that these geometric objects, like that Rubik's Cube, are mm. outside of it, and their structure is much simpler. Now, I'm not saying simple, but much, right. much simpler. But it, when it projects into this really, see, you, you lost information in the projection, right? That's why you have all these little pixels. You have a 3D object here, a two-dimensional screen. So, you've lost, so now it looks really complicated. But so what's happening there, then when these things collide? Are, they're making a new Rubik's Cube? 
So, or they're just rotating a shape that's already there. This is where I have no way to anchor myself. Well, so particles are things inside space-time, right? Yes. So, so when we look at particle interactions at the Large Hadron Collider, mm-hmm. we're looking at the pixels, yep. the motions of the pixels inside space-time. The amplitudehedron and other structures that they're finding. Okay, amplitudehedron is something you say so fast. I've heard you say this a gazillion times, but I had to look it up. Oh, right. So an amplitudehedron is a shape. Yes. A geometric shape. Right. In how many dimensions? Um, they can be in small numbers dimensions, but they can go to infinity. So there's, there's different kinds of ampli- different sizes of amplitudehedron depending on how many particles you want to interact. And that's our Rubik's Cube. That would be the Rubik's Cube beyond the headset. Yep. And by the way, um, this is brand new. This was published in 2013. This is not even 10 years old. Mm. So this is, this is all new stuff, um, this amplitudehedron. So it's no surprise that people haven't heard of it, and, and many physicists um, haven't heard of it. Uh, it's truly, truly remarkable. Uh, quantum theorists, in fact. I and so how, what makes people think the amplitudehedron is actually real, that we have detected the shape outside of the headset? Well... I think that the really brilliant physicists would not say we're done. They would say, we've taken a first step outside of the headset of space-time, mm. and one of the first structures we found is the amplitudehedron. That doesn't mean it's going to be the final answer. They're looking at other structures, something called the cosmological polytope, and surface hedra, and, and so forth. Cosmological polytrope? Po- polytope. 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 What is that? that is, is it another geometric shape? It's another geometric shape that uh, Nima, Arkani Hamed, Juan Maldacena, and, and others, um, a lot of the work's been done at the Institute for Advanced Study and collaborators with the people there. Mm-hmm. And this is trying, see, the amplitudehedron is primarily for um, flat space-time, in my understanding, so without gravity. But when you deal with gravity, and, and Einstein told us that sort of curves space-time, then, it's, then things get a little more complicated. And in that case, um, I think they're looking at the cosmological polytope for more um, like cosmological kinds of predictions. So the amplitudehedron, so, and, and I'm sure that they're saying that, they're not saying the cosmological polytope is the final word. What's really interesting is they've already taken a step beyond the amplitudehedron. So there's something called... Meaning even that they don't think is fundamental or just that it's part of the fundamental... They, they think it's an important step outside of space-time, but what surprises the physicists is that the heart of the amplitudehedron is something called a permutation, a, a kind of permutation called a decorated permutation. It's like shuffling cards, you're permuting cards. Mm. So it's, it's a surprise that, that if you let go of space-time... Things become simple. You get this amplitudehedron. The math becomes simple. And then when you look at the amplitudehedron and ask about its essential character, you find out that behind the amplitudehedron is just permutations, decorated permutations, shuffling cards kind of thing. And so we're at this position. So this is only, you know, in the last couple decades, right, that this has happened. The amplitudehedron is 2013, so it's only nine years old. So here we're at this really interesting position in, in science, in physics. I like to think of it like the movie 2001, A Space Odyssey. Mm. Remember the awesome scene? Movie. It was a great movie, yeah. And, and there's a scene where there's the monolith. It's just sitting there, pregnant with meaning. And the apes are looking at it. They're afraid of it. They're beating on it. They don't know what to do with it. They, you, you get the sense that they know it's important, but they haven't a clue 
what it's pointing to. Mm. That's where we are. The amplituhedron and the decorated permutations are these monoliths outside of space-time. There's, there's no dynamics. Who ordered this monolith, the amplituhedron, just sitting outside of space-time? It, it captures all these amplitudes, all the particle amplitudes. It captures the structure of space-time. Einstein's special relativity, quantum, unit, uh, quantum theory, and his so-called unitarity of quantum theory. So this is deeper. This thing is deeper than space-time. It's deeper than quantum theory. Quantum theory itself is not deep enough. This structure, the amplituhedron, this monolith, is beyond quantum theory, but it codes for quantum theory as a projection in space-time. So who ordered this? Like just in 2001 in Space Odyssey, the apes, you can imagine, what is this? Where did it come from? Why? What, what, what's it going on? We don't I can know. imagine me asking that. Yeah. Well, everybody's asking it right now. Uh, you know, who or, so it's just a static structure. Physicists like dynamics. We want something, we want to have equations of motion. We don't have that. We just have, here's the geometry, and here's behind it this permutation. They're just sitting there. Who ordered that and why? So that's where, so, but the attitude is not one of um, despair. This is really for the young geniuses who are doing this stuff. This is like fabulous, right? We're the first generation, that, not me, but the young physicists, the first generation that really gets to step outside of the headset of space-time. They've already found these monoliths, the amplituhedron, decorated permutations. And just to really make that simplistic, shapes? Shapes. And then the shuffling of the shapes? Yeah, that's right. Some shuffling that codes for the shapes. There's the shuffling. Shuffling. That, that when you say for codes for the shapes, it what captures does that mean? All, it captures their essential structure. In some sense, even the geometry, the volumes and so forth, are redundant. There's this even simpler, more compressed um, description. Right now, the decorated permutation is the most compressed description that doesn't have any extra bells and whistles. The amplitudehedron, in some sense, um, the positive Grassmannian that, that, used, that they used to build it and so forth, they have extra bells and whistles. In some sense, the amplitudehedron boils it down to its essence. But, but the, so it's shuffles, permutations. And, and the big question is, why? Why, why this? I mean, if you, if you, in the beginning, God said, why would God say that? <laughs> what, why, what is it? So let there be shapes. Let there be the amplitudehedron. Let there be shuffles. That doesn't seem quite deep enough, right? It seems like there's got to be something beyond that, some, something dynamical. And there's no clue right now in the physics about a dynamical thing behind the decorated permutations or the amplitudehedron. Well, we just lost me, so I'm guessing that we lost a lot of people. So this is outside of the headset, so we're beginning to get to what we think may be these foundational pillars, but it's so early that nobody really knows what these are yet. Right. Let's go back to um, the quantum realm for a second. Right. So this is one of my pet peeves, mm -hmm. that people in the mindset space tend towards magical thinking, and there's something about yeah. Quantum entanglement, the quantum tubules in the brain or whatever it is that they think about collapsing and all that. Um, one, 
Is there anything, even inside the headset, is there anything to be learned from the quantum realm? Does the quantum realm point to anything outside of the headset? Um, and where are we, like, how, how do people not drift into meaninglessness as they begin to pursue this? Because it, mm. I, mm. because I'm so focused on usefulness, right. I get very um, agitated, might be the right word, mm-hmm. when people are like, oh, we're quantum entangled and that's what the soul is and I want to tear my hair out. Right. So it's one thing just to say those words. It's another thing to have a mathematical model. And a mathematical model that actually predicts precise outcomes of precise experiments. And so that's the difference. When physicists talk about quantum entanglement, they're talking serious math mm. and then serious experiments that just a week ago, um, the Nobel Prize was awarded to um, three of the pioneers in testing one of the key predictions of entanglement. Uh, Which is that the real world isn't real. So yeah, it's called... Um, Local realism, mm. the, the, the belief that we tend to have of local realism. So objects like an electron has a property like its position or its spin. Whether or not you observe it, it's got a value of that because it's real. And we assume we, we've assumed that, right? That's that, that's the reality. Of Whether you see it or not, it is spinning up or spinning down. That's right. It's like saying you the train is there is. and it's going to hit you even if you don't see right. it. You close your eyes, it's not going to stop the train from hitting you. So the electron really has its position and really has a spin when it's not observed. And and the other assumption is is locality. Those it's Einstein's assumption that that nothing, no effects travel faster than the speed of light through space, through space time, and so that, the two together are called local realism. So it's possible that when we say local realism is false, that it's either the realism that's wrong or the locality. Mm. So it could be, you could say, okay, local realism is false because there really are properties that exist, but they travel, their influences go faster than the speed of light. Or you can say nothing travels faster than the speed of light, but, so the realism is false. I believe Einstein, but the realism is false. My attitude is both are false. Local and realism are both false. And that comes out of um, just the idea that space-time itself is not fundamental, right? And so let me say it real simply for people like me. Things only exist when you look at them. Right. You create them when you see them. Like in Grand Theft Auto, I have a VR headset on. I look over there and I see a red Camaro. Is there a red Camaro in the supercomputer? No. The average person is going to reject this out of hand. So, one, we're going to have to walk through the Nobel Prize. So, thankfully, you had linked to an article, so I read about it. It melted my brain about an hour before you and I sat down together. And I was just like, (laughs) how the hell is this real? Or true, I guess, because it's not real. Uh, And then, so we'll we'll walk through that. But to give people the analogy to anchor them, um, I think you and I disagree about this, and I've always told people, largely because I don't want to argue about it and I don't really know, that I don't think we live in a simulation. The more times I interview you, the more I'm like, maybe we do, or maybe the way our fitness payoffs get mapped, it is so effectively like a simulation as you might as well think of it as living in a simulation. So I've written this story with my team, I don't want to overly take credit, but we've created this thing called Project Kaizen. And in Project Kaizen, Mm -hmm. they're um, in this thing that we call the array. 
The array is basically quantum foam, and the idea is that it's information theory. So okay. that you, information can travel faster than the speed of light, and that ultimately, the thing that drives people mad in our world is to ask the question, where is the array? Mm -hmm. Because they're thinking of it as like a quantum supercomputer or something, but in the lore where we play with that question, I don't want to give away what sure. we think right, is right, the, right, the right, right answer, but we play with that question a lot. And so one of the characters in the story is literally driving himself mad by asking the question, where is the array? I know if I can generate enough energy, I can rip this veil and I can see through beyond the headset into like, is this sitting on a desk somewhere? And like, can we actually discover where that is? And okay, so working with that idea, mm -hmm. at first I thought, Nah, I mean, this is all just a story. But the more that I look at this, in, in th this is in real life, put that in air quotes. In real life, you only render things when the player is looking at it. It's the only way to right. not melt right. the, the computer. Right, right. So as the, they move their character's eyes right. around, they see different right. parts of the world, it, it literally comes into existence. It gets rendered right. when they look right. at it, and exactly. it ceases to be rendered when they look away. So they exactly. feel right. like they're in the seamless 3D environment, right. but in reality, it's a trick. And so it's right. only rendering right up to the edge of your field of view, exactly. and then right. outside of that, it's gone. Exactly, yeah. As you describe the math, that is what's really happening. Right. That, I mean, it's kind of fun and cool and interesting. Right. Um, okay, so with that analogy, people understand that one. I agree. At, if you try to replicate, so going back to what I was saying about, if I try to replicate this table and make it look photorealistic, it is unbelievably difficult. And right. there are so many right. elements of like reflectivity and depth of how far the light penetrates and absolutely. oh my God, and it on and on and on. Right, absolutely. So we know that there are all these things that you can do to recreate reality. One of the things as you build reality in a virtual environment is you have to deal with rendering only that which you're pointed at, what That's you right. measure. Exactly right. As we look at the quantum world, right. that holds true in a way that is so weird. I don't know whether to laugh or be creeped out or whatever, but it's utterly fascinating. Okay, so Ooh. now to the Nobel Prize. So we know that that's how you would have to do it if you want to recreate reality. And the Nobel Prize was won for... Showing that the idea of local realism, that things exist and have definite values of their properties and with influences that go no faster than the speed of light, that's false. That assumption of local realism is false. And there are even really interesting uh, quantum setups where you can prove that... When I make this particular set of measurements, I know with probability one what I will get, like on my eighth measurement. I know with probability one what the value will be. Again, probability I'll, one means 100%. 100%. That's right. 100% what I'm going to measure. And yet, I also can prove that that value, let's say of the position or the spin, cannot possibly exist until the moment I make the measurement. Okay. So let's walk people through that. So <laughs> Einstein... Right. And two other people basically said, huh, the math predicts that what you just said is true, right. that I can have two, um, we end up calling them quantumly entangled particles, right. but I have two particles, I forget which type, racing away from each other right. to the opposite ends of the solar system, very, right. very, very far apart. And one of them we know, they have to have opposite spin. 
So one of them is going to be spinning up, one of them is going to be spinning down. Right. And they said, they're like socks. So one of them could be the right sock and one of them is the left sock. So right. once you measure that, oh, this is the right one, then you know automatically that the other person has the left one. Right. And the Nobel Prize was one for proving that you don't, they're not like socks. Right. Right. It's not, you, it's not even that you don't know which is which. It's that whichever one you look at first, if that spins up, then you know instantaneously the other one is spinning down. Right. But causally, because this one is spinning up, that one must be spinning down. Right. right. Okay, so right. now the part I don't understand, which, by the way, means that these things will react effectively to each other because you measured it instantaneously across the entire solar system in this example, which is way faster than light. My question is, mm -hmm. when you measure it, if it wasn't already spinning up or down, what makes it spin up or down? Is it just probability? Yeah, that's all that physics can tell us right now are the probabilities for this. So, so and, and probability is where explanation stops, right? When you put a probability measure in your theory, you're saying my understanding stops right here, so I need a probability measure. Because if, if I could tell you how it worked, then I would tell you how it worked. Mm. Well, right now I can just say, here's the probabilities. And so that's what we get in quantum theory is, and, and so that's why Einstein said, I don't, you know, God doesn't play dice. He didn't like the idea that, that God didn't know all the way down what was going mm. on, that there would be these random probabilities. But yeah, when you do the experiments, it turns out entanglement is real. And, and that then leads to the conclusion, ultimately, that local realism is false. And it's, it's, it's truly stunning. But if you think about it in terms of a headset, as you said, I render, like in the virtual reality Grand Theft Auto, I render the Camaro when I look, and I garbage collect it when I look away. I, I just delete it. I render particles. I render space-time itself. Space-time itself doesn't exist, except as a data structure <clears throat> um, that we use. And so it's now in terms of a simulation, I should make a distinction between what we're saying here and a different kind of notion of simulation that Nick Bostrom has. So there's a simulation theory of Nick, uh, Nick Bostrom and others where, where they you know, say, look, this isn't real. It could be just some computer geek that did a program and we're just creatures in the simulated world in this program. And it turns out that that computer geek it's herself is just a, uh, a program from someone else at a lower level. And there's this whole hierarchy uh, all the way down until you get to some base programmer. But they assume that the base level is a space-time world. Mm -hmm. So they're still stuck on the headset. That, that kind of simulation theory isn't thinking big enough. You have to let the... And, and they're also assuming that, that programs can create consciousness, which is another story. No one's been able to show how, how that's even possible. So they're just not thinking big enough. You've got to let go of space-time at the base of the entire hierarchy of simulations to really get where the physicists have gotten. Space-time itself is merely a headset. So, so the standard simulation theory isn't thinking big enough. It's still stuck in the headset. As we strip away the headset, is local realism going to remain false? Or will there be something, I, a better way to ask it, when we strip away the headset, is God still playing dice? I'll put it this way. As scientists making theories, we will always come up short. We will always have a place where we say in our theory, this is where our knowledge stops. 
And what, that's what we call the assumptions of our theory. So every scientific theory says, if you grant me these assumptions, I'll explain all this wonderful stuff. But you have to grant me those assumptions. And I can't explain those assumptions. Mm. Like even Einstein. He said, let me grant me that the speed of light is constant for all observers and grant me that the laws of physics are the same for all, all people moving in uniform motion. If you grant me those two things, then I can do all this wonderful stuff. And that's the way all scientific theories work. Grant me this assumption, these miracles. Because we don't yet understand these things. Well, and, and it's also, I think, intrinsic to what it means to be a scientific theory. So, so there's no escaping this. A scientific theory, there is no theory of everything. That's a flat-out statement. I'll, um, there can never be a scientific theory of everything. Because of Gödel's incompleteness Gödel's theorem. incompleteness theorem. But, but even just before Gödel's incompleteness theorem, every theory says, grant me these assumptions, please. Mm. You have to make certain assumptions to, even, to boot up a but theory. But isn't that just our ignorance? Uh, pro- probably so, but our ignorance is unlimited. It's interesting. So I heard you <laughs> and Yosha Bach, yeah, that his uh-huh. name, uh, discussing, and he said something that rings intuitively true to me, which is that we always want to say, oh, we'll never understand that. Right. But we just don't understand it right now. And just like Newton and his whole thing at the end of his life, where he was like, the right way to think of me is as a child on the shore playing with a seashell right. in front of the entire vast sea of undiscovered truth. Right. And his students, though, didn't believe that. Now, maybe out of arrogance, maybe they that just sat so icky with them to think that they were so ignorant to so many things. But also, to be generous to them, maybe because they believed on a long enough timeline we really would figure things out. Or even if you'll grant me my miracle of as we begin to merge with machines, will we be able to process data in such a more vast way that we're able to see what is true? All of the mismapping of the or all of the combinatorial combinations become manageable just because we can crunch so much data and so oh you might as well look at what is exactly real um do you does that so with that mm-hmm. set up i finally just went and, and looked up girdle's uh right. incompleteness theorem because i've tried to hang with you every episode around <laughs> this right, right. and Looking at it, it's basically that there are, and this will be the world's most simplistic interpretation, but there are, um, you can create an equation that you know to be true, but you can't prove it. Right. And it's, uh, it's beyond me to be able to explain how that's true, but when you read about it, it's like, whoa, okay, so you can really create, it's, it's kind of like the mathematical version of a linguistic trap where it's like the statement on this side of the card or the statement on the other side of the card is false. You turn it over and it says what the statement on the other side of the card is true. And so now you're trapped because they can't both be right or wrong. Right. So it, I can't explain it better than that, but like without that, if there isn't things that are, if, he's right and there are things that are true but that cannot be proven i get why you say that we'll never have a theory of everything but if we just don't understand enough yet then it feels like we will eventually no girdle's incompleteness theorem um, is definitive it says that no matter how 
complicated your mathematical or scientific theory is. You can always produce a new statement that's true and is not provable within the theory that you've got. So that means it escaped your current theory. It, your, your, your theory was not a theory of everything because it wasn't a theory of this. It didn't capture this truth. So you didn't have a theory of everything. So you say, okay, well, I'll just put it in my theory. So now I've got, then Gödel says, well, sorry. Now with your new augmented system, here's this new, I'll use it to show that there's this new thing that's true, but can't be proven. So you don't have a theory of everything. And you add that. And, and what that means is that there is this unlimited realm of truth that's forever beyond our notion of proof of scientific theory. It's unlimited. So there's this, I think of it as like unlimited intelligence and that is it's out there and our scientific theories will, will get huge and far more interesting and far more complex and cover lots and lots. They, they'll cover, we'll be blown away, we'll make lots and lots of progress. And, but Gödel's incompleteness theorem says, but you will have not even begun to scratch the surface of the unlimited intelligence that's out there. Hmm. So, I'm not, I'm not, by the way, some people said, well, Hoffman, you're, 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 you've walked away from modernism and the, and the desire for logic and truth and rationality. You've gone into postmodernism and, and, and uh, you know, and my attitude is, no, no, no. Reason is telling us its limits. Reason is saying that logic itself cannot get to all truths. So I'm paying due respect to reason because reason itself is saying its own limits. And in fact, that gives me even more respect for reason because reason is smart enough to tell us where it gets off. So it's not abandoning reason. It's not going into, you know, some postmodernism kind of thing where anything goes. No, not anything goes. Reason is saying, yeah, use your logical systems, but you, your logical systems must, of course, be internally consistent. So Gödel's theorem is not Gödel's in inconsistency theorem. It's Gödel's incompleteness theorem. Our logic can be consistent. If, if it is consistent, then it's necessarily incomplete. If, it's, if it were inconsistent, then it's mostly useless, right? It'd be mostly useless. So, is Gödel's, so what Gödel really showed is our, our theories are either inconsistent or incomplete. But we call it Gödel's incompleteness theorem because that's, we, we don't think about inconsistency. It's really the incompleteness. Mm. And so, so it's truly respecting reason to recognize that reason itself says where it gets off. And it points to, as Newton pointed, to this unbounded intelligence that reason can always happily explore fully knowing it will always be a trivial foray into the unknown. A trivial foray into the unknown. And yet, somehow, it's important for us to do that foray. So, so as a scientist, this is not just abstract stuff for me. I take, it, I, I take reason very seriously. It says, I have limits, and there are unbounded truths beyond reason. So. I take time to just sit in complete silence and let go of reason and see what happens. Maybe I'm, I can touch that unlimited intelligence. 
Maybe I am that unlimited intelligence under a headset. That's an interesting possibility, which many spiritual traditions have pointed to, that, that we are that unlimited intelligence, so that we then have this interesting back and forth between rigorous logic, not anything goes, rigorous logic on the one hand, and then complete letting go of all concepts, going into complete silence, where there's this incredible intelligence that's it's literally infinitely greater than our scientific intelligence. And having them go back and forth, I think the, the best science in the future will be from those who can do that. Be absolutely hard-nosed in your math and your experiments, absolutely hard-nosed. It's not everything goes, it, it, it's rigor. And then go into complete interior silence to get the true tap into this unlimited wisdom, unlimited uh, intelligence, and go back and forth. Somehow, my feeling is that's what all this is pointing to, that, that we should have our feet in both realms. Um, and for some reason, having feet in both realms is really... If you strive to perform your best in life, bringing your energy and abilities into everything you do, then it only makes sense that you would want to be out on the road with that same power, agility, and performance that everyone expects from you. And there's no better option than the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable SUV yet, the third-generation Range Rover Sport. You guys know I love staying on the cutting edge with technology, and the Range Rover Sport's cabin features advanced technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, a must, offering you and your family and friends new levels of comfort and refinement while traveling. The Range Rover Sport provides an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and redefines sporting luxury for the power, agility, and performance you demand in every area of your life. Explore the Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. What we're up to, what, what this is all about. Okay, so let's push into that a little yeah. bit. So this takes us into consciousness. Never been enamored with the consciousness debate, mm -hmm. but the way that you propose some interesting ways of looking at it, I do find intriguing. Mm -hmm. So you've got this idea that <clears throat> Gödel's incompleteness theorem says that it's this infinite thing and that there's always going to be more to explore, that you will never be able to have a theory of everything. And right. when you ask yourself, why would this be the case, or um, how does that tie into consciousness, and maybe I'm getting this slightly wrong, but my interpretation of what you said is that it's possible that given that consciousness is basically exploring itself, and we are all of the permutations that it must run through to basically have the negative take. I know that not to be me, and that helps me understand who I am. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How close am I getting? That's, that's I think, a, a very, very good first approximation with the proviso that we understand now, based on what we talked about in Gödel's incompleteness theorem, that everything that we are saying now are just words. And they're only pointers into a realm that's, that's unlimited and, and infinitely beyond anything that even our words can point to. So even when I use, so I, I talk about consciousness as being more fundamental than space-time. But even then, if I step back and go, okay, to be really consistent, I have to admit that even a theory of consciousness is not a theory of everything. 
and it may not even be the right language. It's just the next baby step in our How scientific could consciousness exploring. be more fundamental than space-time? Wouldn't the thing that the guys, the local realism, which requires you to look at something, state that if consciousness were more fundamental than space-time, it would already be observing itself? So the way to think about it is, uh, maybe an analogy is, you're wearing a headset. Yep. And you're playing Grand Theft Auto again. Mm-hmm. But there is no real car out there. The steering wheel is just in your head. It's all in your perceptions. All of that is in your... So the entire physical world, quote-unquote, of Grand Theft Auto is made up in your mind, made up in your consciousness. So my, my consciousness or whatever consciousness is, is creating the... Um the virtual world. That's right. The, w- the way I think about it, um, and again, you know, words have limitations, but the math model we're working on, on consciousness indicates that there is one unlimited consciousness that cannot be modeled, and, but we can talk about projections of it. That one, that one big consciousness can, be, can have projections, and we're, we're having a projection into a 4D space-time format. And there's a Tom projection and a Don projection, but we're just projections of this one unlimited um, consciousness that's, that's utterly outside of space and time. And this is probably not a particularly um, sophisticated projection, as I was saying. 40 space time only goes to 10 to the minus 33 centimeters. Pretty trivial. So this is, we're probably, this is, you know, consciousness not being too serious. This is like a, a trivial projection, but it's doing whatever it needs to do. We're doing some science, we're, we're talking. We're learning to love each other, which maybe, you know, who knows, that might be the big thing. Maybe, maybe it's learning to know yourself beyond any concepts and to know that uh, everybody else is really you under a different avatar and to, to learn to love. I mean, I, I don't know what the final answer is, but this is the kind of question that comes up and the kind of answer that comes up. That feels a little bit, wishful thinking isn't the right way, but that feels like a very specific to you prognostication absolutely when i beyond the math yeah when i hear you describing that i think of war games and jacob learning like oh there's no way to win at thermonuclear war the only way to win is to not play great ending to a movie but like when i think about okay wait why would why would consciousness this grand consciousness that the math seems to point to why would it need to understand itself why would it uh, need to discover love? It's like, and I think about this a lot, and we talked about this in the last, um, the last time we were together. I was saying, when you've got a machine and you're trying to like, get AI to do something, you have to give it directives. You have to tell it to do something. But somebody had to tell it to do that thing. So who is telling consciousness, oh, you should care about love? Well, and I, I completely agree with you, Tom. I think that the things I just threw out should probably be thrown out. <laughs> right. But the idea is we don't have good ideas in this space. Mm. So the reason I'm, so when I put these ideas out, I'm not wedded to them in the least. But I'm saying better to have something on the table that we can say, ah, that's not it, than to have nothing on the table. Because at least we can say, okay, that's not it. But, but so why isn't that it? What's wrong with that? And then we can try to, to play with and say, well, how can we get something better? So I put some bad pieces on the table 
because I don't have anything better to so it's poverty of my imagination. But I'm hoping by putting bad pieces on the table and having people go, no, that's not it. I would go, yeah, that's not it. So what is it? What 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 is a better idea? But of course, that's a never-ending process. Girdle tells us that in some sense we'll always be putting bad pieces on the table. Mm. And that's so we have to learn to live with that. We have to learn to say, I'm not going to get the final theory of everything, no matter, even if you're an Einstein, which you put down on the table, we're eventually going to say, here's the limits of that. And that's going to be always the case with scientific theories. It's just that in the things I just threw on the table, the limits are so obvious and so clear that you can just sort of say right away that that doesn't seem right. And I had a nice lunch a few days ago with Annika Harris, and when I was putting these ideas, and she had exactly the same attitude, which is that she said, it sounds too romantic, Don, and, and I agree. But it's better to put something on the table mm. and get a negative reaction so that we start to say, okay, well, what are better places to, to, to go right. in this? But always realize that Gödel is telling us this very humbling thing. You'll never get a theory of everything. And that means there'll always be the feeling of, yeah, but there's more. Yeah, but there's more. Even if you're Einstein, yeah, but there's more. Mm. So consciousness, what... One, I want to understand, as we look at that recent Nobel Prize winning for realizing that local reality isn't a thing, if there is this uber consciousness, how would it not cause the like constant collapsing? If, if consciousness is more fundamental than space-time, how is it not causing this constant collapse down to being observed? Because if consciousness is is the thing that gives rise to that. It would, by nature, be aware. Right. So to really give a technical answer to that, what we're going to have to have is a mathematical theory of consciousness first, right? So what do we mean by consciousness? And write down equations for how it is dynamics. And then we're going to have to say, uh, where is consciousness? Is it inside space-time? See, most of my colleagues who are studying consciousness, my cognitive neuroscience, these are brilliant, brilliant researchers and friends, but they're thinking of consciousness as inside space-time, as being made by the brain, or being made by uh, an AI computer that's complicated enough, or made by integrated information, or microtubule quantum collapses, or, or um, global workspace kind of architectures on the right broadcast architecture there. So there's something inside space-time that's generating consciousness. So that's the, I would say 99% of my colleagues and friends, um, and, and, and by the way, they're brilliant, but they're thinking inside space-time. That's almost all the work is inside space-time and consciousness is stuck inside space-time. I'm saying we need a theory of consciousness outside space-time because our best science tells us that space-time is a trivial data structure. It's a shallow, trivial data structure. Why should we try to shoehorn consciousness to be something inside space-time why not think about, again, the VR case with my headset? All that I'm perceiving is actually not really there. It's actually in my consciousness. Let's turn things around. Space-time and particles and the physical world is just a little tiny data structure inside consciousness. So to have that kind of model, so consciousness is fundamental. Consciousness then uses tiny little headsets in its interactions with itself. And space-time is just one trivial little headset that conscious agents use to interact with, and, and probably has far more interesting ones than, than space-time. 
So to answer your question, we then really have to say, our mathematical model of consciousness, and how does that precisely project into our little space-time headset and give us the laws of quantum field theory, the laws of general relativity, um, evolution by natural selection. We have to get, so all the stuff that we've done inside the headset, science has been inside the headset until the last couple decades. Mm. All of our science has been studying the pixels in our headset and the structure of our pixels. With the amplitudehedron, science is taking a step outside the headset and saying, what is beyond space and time? Okay, so that's really incredible. So, and then they say the deepest thing we found are these decorated permutations. That's the deepest thing we found so far. It doesn't mean it's the final answer, it's just as far as we've gotten. So, what we need to do is take a theory of conscious, consciousness, we call it conscious agents in my case, or conscious units. Annika likes me to use conscious units instead of conscious agents because agency involves maybe the notion of a self. Mm. And there doesn't have to be a notion of a, you know, like a human kind of self in these agents. They, they could be selfless in some sense. Hmm. But conscious. How? Well, so my, myself is... I mean, you know, don't most people define consciousness as it is like something to be you? Right. The self, though, is like, I'm Don Hoffman. I was born in such and such a year. My parents were such and such. I got educated. It's a story. Yeah. But in some sense, if I just let go of the story, if I forgot my story, I would still be conscious. If I, if I forget who I... If I forget everything that I've done... Give me a little drug, and I just see. For, for, it's an experience I'm machine. Still, I'm still, I'm still conscious, and so okay. the the self, in terms of a little story, and and what's interesting is we put so much emphasis in the story, and, and me versus you, and I've mm. got more than you, or I'm smarter than you, or or I'm faster than you. Even little kids, you know, uh, my car is faster. Than you. My daddy's can beat up your, yeah, you know, that kind of thing. Right. So we're always comparing our stories. So so there's no self in these conscious agents in the sense of this little image of myself that I'm defending and showing that it's better than yours, daddy, or your car, or whatever it might be. So, so, so I call them conscious agents, but we could call them conscious units. But the key thing is that that has to be mathematically precise, even though we understand that our mathematics will always be just our current baby step. But nevertheless, you need to be mathematically precise. And we have to show precisely a mapping into space-time. Then we can start to answer your question about how is this local realism thing related to properties of consciousness. Now, the reason we have to map in space-time is because we know that space-time, even if it's just a sort of cheap simulation, it does come from whatever is more foundational than that. And that's where all our data is. The only place our headset lets us look is inside the headset. Mm. So we have to, I mean, if we're going to do experiments to test our theories, we're stuck with this little tiny trivial data structure called space-time. And all of our experiments have to be done in space-time. We have to measure them inside space-time. Mm. So that's why we have to take our theory of consciousness and project it into space-time. Now, what's interesting is that the physicists have gone beyond space-time and found these monoliths, as we talked about, the monolith that's sitting there, the amplitudehedron and so forth, and then the decorated permutation monolith, but no dynamics. So the physicists are going to eventually want a dynamics, right? Why? If you have no space and time, why would something need to move? A physicist like Nima, I, mean, I won't put it on him. I'll, if, if I were the physicist and said, you know what? Here's the final answer. It's the amplitudehedron and a decorated permutation. Mm -hmm. Live with it. That's all there is. And some 20-year-old kid taking a graduate class will go, give me a break. You want me to just live with that? I'm going to look deeper. I'm going to probe deeper. I'm going to find something behind that. And that's, that's what science always does. 
So we're not, so no, none of the physicists, I mean, they're, we, of course, we have a big party and are really happy about the amplitudehedron and the decorator. It's, it's an incredible accomplishment. But the attitude is going to be, what's next? And in, in principle, they're going to want a dynamics, not, a t not time. So you can have dynamics without what we call time as in space-time. So the notion of dynamics or, or sequence is a far more general notion than just the notion of time as we see it in, in terms of space-time. So we want a dynamics in that more general sense of something um, where there are sequences, where there are, it's not just a static object. Because there are things that we see in our headset of space-time that leads us to believe that sequencing is, must be a part of whatever is fundamental? Well, possibly, yes, that. And possibly because um, we, I think, would be impatient or unhappy with a theory that just says, God said this object, and that's it. There is this object, live with it. That's the, that's the final answer. No scientist would be happy with that. Why did God say that? Why couldn't God said something else? And, and, and why, did, why did it have to be static? Why couldn't there be some dynamics, not a space-time dynamics, but some kind of something happening? Mm. Why, why can't? So now the answer may be that the ge geometry is all there is and there is no dynamics. But we're not going to just accept that at face value. We're going to have to be taken there kicking and screaming, right? And made you know to to believe that because nothing else works, but so that's why I think that the physicists themselves are going to look for dynamics behind the decorated permutations. So, what a theory of consciousness has to do then, if it wants to connect with space-time, is it has to show how it maps onto decorated permutations, mm. right? You need a, a dynamical theory of consciousness, and you must show how it maps into decorated permutations. Then the physicists say, if you give me the decorated permutations, I can take you all the way into space-time, and you can predict scattering at the Large Hadron Collider and so forth. And so that's what, what our team has just done in the last 10 weeks. We, we discovered a new bit of mathematics, that um, the dynamics of conscious agents is so-called Markov chains, Markovian dynamics, a very, very simple kind of probabilistic dynamics. And so a few weeks ago, a, few, a couple months ago, we, we decided to look, okay, how do you map Markov chains into decorated permutations? So that we could put a dynamics behind the amplitudehedron. And as far as I, we could tell, there's nothing published uh, in, in terms of a general theory. There are special mm. little cases where they've looked at something. But you know, a general theory, take any Markov chain, map it into decorated permutations. Markov chain is just the long tail knock-on effect of things bumping into each other, essentially. Right, just probabilistic. You know, this, this happens with that probability, this happens with that probability. <clears throat> All the probabilities have to sum to one. What are the probability of when the cue ball hits the, the balls on the pool table that they will right. end up in this configuration? That's right. In the case of conscious agents, I should be explicit. It's like, the, it's a social network. Right? This is now consciousness. So it's a network of agents, and it, in some sense, the, the probabilities are, what's the probability that this guy is going to talk to that guy, or, or these three guys, or those five guys? And so it's, it's sort of like network linkage. Google has a lot of links, a lot more than Hoffman. So Google has a lot of, lot of things that are, that are talking to Google. Hoffman has a very few things. Apple has a lot of things talking to them. Mm -hmm. so, and those, so those probabilities are sort of saying, it's network probabilities. What's the probability that, that in some sense, it's your influence, too, as well? Google has huge influence because of all the networks, all the connections it's got. 
much more than someone who only has five followers, right? Google has millions or hundreds of millions. So, so those, so, and, and then there's, you know, if you think about it, someone tweets and then that gets picked up and who picks it up and who retweets it and who likes it and so forth. So it, you see all the, it's all probabilities, right? You're, the, the, someone does something and it ripples through the whole network probabilistically. And you, you can't know exactly, you know, even though Tom is a follower of somebody else, it doesn't mean that Tom's going to tweet everything. It's what, what does Tom like? What, what do, or maybe Tom just missed that. I mean, he, was, he, he, he had something else that day. So it's all probabilistic. And so you, you see these evolving probabilities on this network. And that's what Markov chains are really good at. They're looking at literally, so the theory of conscious agents, think social networks, like Twitterverse and so forth. And how influences propagate in the Twitterverse, and and then so what we found about ten weeks ago was the, we, we invented apparently as far, as far as we can tell new math, uh, a, a precise way to take any Markovian dynamics and map it into decorated permutations. So that we now have a map from the dynamics of conscious agents into decorated permutations. The physicists then and decorated permutations for people that don't know is the shuffling. But it's shuffling that can go either direction. So I have the good fortune that you were explaining this to right, me before right. we started rolling. I don't want people to think that I'm more clever than I am. <laughs> uh, but decorated permutations, you said, okay, when people think about shuffling a deck, they think about card one going into the third position. They don't think about um, card one going, if there's five cards, going the other way. So instead of going one, two, and ending up at three, it goes five four and ending up at three. So same number of moves, but you've gone in a different direction. And am I explaining that right? Yeah, the idea of the two different directions is important, but it's slightly, just a slight difference. So suppose I have five cards, just one, two, three, four, five. Yep. Um, And they're in order, and now I'm going to shuffle them. And now I say, okay, one went to position three now, but five went to position two. So one going to three is sort of shuffling forward, right? You, you went to a bigger number. Mm. Five going to two, you're going to a smaller number. You're going backward. So, so that, a normal permutation, that's, that's fine. That's what a normal permutation is. A decorated permutation says you only shuffle to a bigger number. So if you want five to go to two, what you're going to do is you're going to have five go to seven, because seven minus five, five is the biggest number. Seven minus five is two. Okay, but if, if five if five had gone to one, then then we'd actually go five goes to six because six minus five is one. Mm. So you, it's a wraparound. So only so if you already if if one is going to three, then you just do the normal thing. One goes to three. But if some permutation is going to a smaller number, like three goes to one. Then you actually have to say three goes to six because because the total of five and five plus one is six. So that's called a decorated permutation. So it's, it's not, it's just a permutation with this extra little twist. It's not a big deal, frankly. It just turned out that you needed that extra twist to fully capture the particle physics, scattering of, of particles. So when you do that, what's, what's stunning is for some cases, so in the approximation in which all particles are supersymmetric and massless, so, they have, so they're all traveling at the speed of light, they're massless, mm-hmm. so they travel at the speed of light. In that simple case, the decorated permutation is everything. That's it. 
And when, when you let go of supersymmetry and you have massive particles, then all you have to do is you have the decorated permutation plus you need to add information about the mass and the spin. But the decorated permutation is really doing the heavy lifting. So that's the stunning thing is to the physicist, which is, and, and you see it in the writings when you, when you read like, like Nima Arkani Hamed has the book, you know, Grassmannian Geometry of Scattering Amplitudes with a bunch of, when they talk about the de decorated permutations, you can see in the way they write, they're like, who ordered this? I mean, I, you would never have guessed that it would be something like that. So, but here's an interesting thing. It turns out that decorated permutations are the most compact way to capture a Markovian dynamics. It's an incredibly compact way of capturing the dynamics. It basically is telling you, what, what decorated permutations in a dynamical system are telling you is your social network. Who are you connected to? Who are you interacting By with? By only shuffling in one direction, you better capture... You better capture that. The like, like, if you want, I can go into the details. It, it's it, so foreign to me. Right. I don't know how much the details, but that's really strange. So that's where we get into the math. Fair enough. I'll accept it right, as right, right. true. Right. Um, we could do the math if you want, but but, but well, it, the it last is a time little that we, technical. The last time that we did the math, it actually ended up being really fascinating. So let's try it. Let's, okay. see, let's see how okay. far we get before my brain snaps in half. Okay. So the key thing about these decorated permutations that gives them this extra power yep. is that there's two ways to map to yourself, right? So if, if you shuffle the cards, but card number one stays number one, mm -hmm. then one goes to one, right? But... With the decorated permutation, you could say, well, if there were, say, five cards, then you could say, well, one goes to one, but also one goes to six is another way of saying that you stayed yourself mm -hmm. because it, six mod five is one. Six minus five is one. Yep. So there are so-called so What two. happens if I want to move five to position four? That's really nine, and you said that seven was the max. So uh, oh, oh, no. So the, the, the max would be ten. Okay. Right. Got it, right. got it, got it. So if you have five cards, the maximum number would be 10. For n cards, it's 2n. Right, right. understood. So, so for five, so if there are five cards, five could either map to itself five to five or five goes to 10. Yep. Because that would be, so the one is called the first decoration of, of the identity because it's the identity move, five went to five. And the, the other is called the second decoration of the identity. And, and there's another branch of mathematics where they're called loops and co-loops. Um, but anyway, what, so the way it matters in terms of the physics, now in, in physics, when you have the first decoration of the identity, it corresponds to what they call a zero-dimensional space. So in some sense, the thing doesn't exist. It's a zero dimension. And when it maps to itself in the second kind of identity, then it's a, its own one-dimensional space, a separate one-dimensional space. So the reason for the, the decorated permutation is to capture that distinction between something that is alone in the sense that um, it's essentially empty versus alone in the sense that it's just a one-dimensional space, a line versus just a zero-dimensional point. You needed to capture those two things, and so, so it does. But for the Markov dynamics, it captures something about social networks that's interesting. Um, e either... I'm alone, I'm, I'm the identity, I'm alone because I'm, I'm talking to myself, and so I'm only talking to myself, or I'm alone because I'm not even talking to myself. 
And so the case in which I'm not even talking to myself is the first declarational identity. Mm. And the one in which I'm only talking to myself and nobody else, that's the second. And as soon as I'm talking to anybody else, then I get a non-trivial permutation. And that then, what you do is you um, assign, if, say I'm, I'm in the social network and I'm number two. And suppose that my decorated permutation assigns me to five. There's only five members. That means that um, my social network, everybody in my social network is captured between two and five total. So, for example, number one is not in my social network. Yep. Right. So, so what the decorated permutation for a dynamical system is, is doing is it's capturing. Now, now, it could be that, for example, when I go two to five, um, maybe four isn't in my network. But, I, but I'm, I'm not going to worry about that. I'm, I'm just going to say everybody that's in my network is captured between two and five, inclusive of two and five. And when you look at the whole decorated permutation, you'll figure out that four wasn't in the net social network of two. You can figure it out from the decorated permutation. So that's why it's such the, it's a, a really um, compact representation uh, of everything. So, so eventually we may actually use this in social network theory. Our, 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 our new mathematics of decorated permutations for dynamics may actually end up being a very compact representation mm. of social networks. I haven't even thought about that yet, but that... As you were explaining it, I was like, are they going to run this math for predictive models for social networking? Well, it, it's, it is the, right now the most compact mathematics that we can use to describe social networks uh, and the dynamics of social networks. Basically, the dynamics of who are you actually interacting with. So, mm. so this is a, a brand new tool that I, you know, has never been, as far as I know, um, used. We, we invented it. So we, we have a paper that we're about to submit for publication in two or three weeks where we present this. And I did give a, a, a professional talk at Stanford um, a month or two ago um, where I presented the math. I know how people put this shit together. Like, this is so abstract for me. Yeah. I am yeah. clinging on by my fingernails and right. I would not want to have to explain decorated permutations to anybody. <laughs> right. Uh, but that's really interesting that I mean, so we're caught in between two things. One, talking about the things that we can predict and how utterly fascinating it is when you can actually map out this is what happens. Right. And then talking about how, oh, yeah, everything that you're mapping is totally fake. It's, uh, it's really interesting. But that's one of the things that I've always, I, I cognitively, uh, I, I don't have that ability. It doesn't come naturally to me. Me either. Like I have to <laughs> loop around this stuff so many times just to get like the real basics. Yeah. But the idea of being able to understand a system so well that you can predict it, this goes back to what I was saying. Right. My, my whole thing in life is when you can accurately predict the outcome of your actions, things get <clears throat> very interesting. And so anything, I mean, that like gets, as of right now, I can't digest that enough to make it usable in my life. But it hints at this idea of you really can map out if I do this, this, and this, mm -hmm. even as it gets more and more complicated, you really can predict what the outcome is going to be. And the closer that you can get to that, the more effective you will be in your life, especially because so much of what one does in business, it's all human psychology. And so if you have a way, I mean, and this really gets into right now, impact theory is investing hugely into AI. AI and what we're doing in terms of our funnels, AI in terms of what we're doing in the gaming side, and acknowledging that even though you have a wall of data that as a person you can't work your way through, there really is, there are patterns in that data oh, yes. that are highly leverageable. And 
in fact, one of the things like as, as you're talking, and I don't think you share my obsession with this, but you might, my obsession with physics is getting people to understand that when Einstein wrote down his general relativity and special relativity, it gave us the modern world in ways that I don't think people fully understand. Right. From um, being able to zoom to GPS to um, atomic energy. I mean, it's really spectacular. Once you're able to better understand the nature of reality, you can do things with that because it makes predictions. I can't remember if we were talking about that before or after we started rolling, but that ability to, oh, that theory makes this prediction and you can begin to think in novel ways. And so... I, for a while, I was teaching a course that I called Business Decision Making. It's the worst fucking title ever. Nobody knows what that means. <laughs> but it actually is the only thing in business that matters. You have to be able to go, should I do this? Should I not do this? What will happen if I interpret the world this way versus that way? And people that succeed in business, they get very good at knowing how to think through the problem. Mm-hmm. To think through the problem, you have to understand the nature of things. And so my whole thing was, hey, are you doing social media? You better understand the nature of social media. What's the nature of social media? It's human psychology plus the algorithm. And so like, right. if you master both, now you can really do something. Right. The problem is that both of those data sets are so massive right. that you're really taking your best swag And getting into this stuff is, for me, if we really can peel through the the headset and start getting into, no, 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 all these things, it's a really low fidelity thing, and this will scare people, but as you... If you're the first person to poke through that, right. oh my God, you have, I mean, not to take the dark example, but I mean, we ended World War II by being the first to understand atomic right. energy and exactly how to right. split the atom. There are way more uplifting and positive examples, right, but right. that's just the one that will stick out in everybody's consciousness. But being able to, in fact, this is something that I, I don't know if you know Eric um, Weinstein, mm-hmm. but talking to him, he's looking at, okay, what's that next breakthrough and what's it going to let us predict and so that's his whole like obsession is we've got people playing at very high levels and if he's right and he understands something that other people don't understand it's going to make predictions and we don't know where those predictions go right they could be good they could be terrifying could be life-changing in a good way in a bad way but getting people to understand like you need to be obsessed at at least at the headset level. You have to be obsessed with better predicting what all this means. So anyways, you're talking about decorated permutations and stuff. It just gets me thinking about large data sets, how we simplify that, what that's going to mean in my world in terms of business intelligence, identifying an audience, understanding what will convert it it really matters. Like it, it, it plays out in a really real way. It, it does. And I think a, a metaphor here might illustrate how big the potential is. Science of space-time has been all in the headset. Mm. And we've become wizards of the headset, just like someone in Grand Theft Auto has become a wizard at using the steering wheel and mm. the gas to go through the space-time of the you know, Grand Theft Auto virtual world. But suppose that you learned to think outside the headset. You actually 
understand the software mm. in the supercomputer that's running it, then you can take the gas out of the tank of the wizard. You can give him flat tires or her flat tires. Mm. You can change the geometry of the roads. In other words, the wizard is trivial compared to what you can do once you have learned how the headset works. So science has just taken its first baby steps outside of the headset. Just in the last 20 years, we're taking our first baby step. Once we start to understand the first level of software that's available to us, I'm not saying we're going to get the whole thing. I mean, as Girdle's incompleteness theorem says, the software is endless. But the way things seem to work is you do get to see layer by layer by layer. So as we go to the first layer of the software, the wizardry inside space-time is going to look trivial compared mm -hmm. to... So right now, for example, something like 97% of the galaxies that we can see, we could never go to. They're moving away from us faster than the speed yeah. of light. Not because they're moving through space faster than the speed of light. They're not. But space itself is expanding so quickly that if we move through space to try to get to them, the space would be expanding so fast that we couldn't get to them at the speed of light. And so there's 97% of the real estate in our universe mm. is waving at us, saying, hi, you can never come see me. Yeah, that's fascinating, especially because if space can expand faster than the speed of light, this is more, at least in my limited mind, pointing at like... Something deeper. Yeah, there, there's something else going on. But what if we didn't have to go through space to get to Alpha Centauri? Yeah, this is, every time you say this, it turns me on. Like, this is so that's, that's the, exciting. This is where I, I'm, I'm really excited. Uh, this is one reason why I'd like to understand the, our theory of conscious agents outside. Right? I'm not saying the theory of conscious agents is right, but it's the first baby step that I've seen where it's a dynamical system where you can actually talk about, quote-unquote, software that you mm. could tinker with. You could actually do something with it um, that would allow us, perhaps, new technologies where we don't go through space to uh, the Andromeda galaxy. That would take us uh, 2.4 million years. Good luck. Even your great-great-grandkids wouldn't be alive. Yeah. But what if we could go around space? Because our headset is just a headset. You, don't, you, you can just change the software. Oh, you want to be at Alpha Centauri or, or Andromeda? Just change the software. Now you're there. Because you realize that space-time isn't the reality. It's just a data structure. You can play with the data structure. As soon as we, the next generation, my generation won't get it. The next generation that really gets it is going to unleash miracles. Because we will then start to really get the software behind space-time. We will begin to tinker with it. And it's gonna, the possibilities are endless. Mm. I, I can't even imagine. Speaking of imagining, ground me back in how you think about this in your real life. So I know that you got clobbered yeah. by COVID. Yeah. You wrote a goodbye text to your wife, I'm assuming, because it was COVID and she couldn't come in the room because this was really early, right? <clears throat> how did that influence that moment for you? Well... Like, were you just like, oh, it's, it's all a headset. Who cares? Bye, babe. I, yeah, I wish Peace. I could say, you know, I'm, I'm this really enlightened guy in the science and spirituality. And, and, and so I was just really calm. And I, I wish I could say that. But, but I, you know, I was in tremendous pain. My heart had been pounding uh, the arrhythmia, you know, cardiac um, arrhythmia, 190 beats per minute, 180 beats per minute for 36 hours. Jesus. I, I, 
I knew that my heart couldn't do that much longer. And they hadn't been able to figure out a way to stop it. And so, like, 4 o'clock in the morning, my wife was asleep, but, but I didn't know that I would make it until she was awake. So I, I texted her. I knew I wouldn't wake her up. She has her thing on mute. But I, I at least wanted to give her a goodbye text because I figured by the time she was up, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be alive. Mm. And after I did the text, you know, within an hour after that, um, so they found a drug that calmed my heart down and was able to keep my heart calm long enough so I could eventually get a surgery, which then cured the problem. So, mm. so, so I, you know, what'd you put in the text? You don't have to give me verbatim, obviously that's super private, but like, what was the gist? It was, it, well, I, you know, when you're feeling that bad, you, 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 you I didn't have the wherewithal to say much. It just said, mm. I, I don't think, you know, said, sweetheart, I don't think I'm going to make it. I love you. And that was it. I just, I just, that was all I had. So there was, there wasn't, um, so I can imagine someone who's really spiritually adept and, and advanced might sit there and very calmly, that wasn't me. That mm. was, I was completely shattered. Well, I'd been awake for 48 hours with a heart beating at 180 beats per minute for 36 hours. I, I was, I was done and, and it, I was scared and I was lonely and I was afraid and I missed my wife and my daughter and my grandkids and and it was um, so so I have no illusions about you know being some kind of spiritual master who is you know above it all I you know I'm just another human being with the same problems as everybody else these are really good ideas that I think are helping me to get a bigger picture but when it comes right down to it when push comes to shove there's something inside me that believes that space-time is fundamental. Mm. It believes that when the body dies, that's it. So it's really interesting. I, I'm not coherent. There's, there's, well, put it this way. Maybe intellectually I'm coherent about this, but there's an emotional side of me that hasn't come along. Now, I am meditating, and I think that slowly the emotional side of me is unraveling that that tight scared little child that's inside of me that thinks this is all it and is afraid of dying and so forth it's slowly unraveling i don't know if it'll ever completely unravel i i i hear people that i have no reason to disbelieve who say that they've completely unraveled it and they're completely unafraid of death i believe that that's possible um but i'm not enlightened um uh, yeah so that was my experience it was Sobering, but one thing that comes out of it is I, um, when I stop and reflect, I'm grateful for each day because I didn't expect to have any of these days. I didn't, I mean, we discovered the stuff about decorated permutations since then. I'm so grateful to be alive for the fun of, you know, seeing this decorated, that's really neat. And of course, things have happened with my grandkids that are fun, and so mm -hmm. I, everything is um, a delight and a, I don't take it for granted. And if I were to face death in the same way again, I'd probably feel afraid and scared and, and so forth. Um, so, What do you think happens when we die? My, my best guess is we just take a headset off. That, but that, that implies like a keeping of the personality. No, it doesn't. It, it, to me, it suggests that the whole story, you know, I was born in such and such a year at such and such a city in such and such a hospital. My parents did this. I did that. I had that whole story 
Maybe something that you say goodbye to. So cognition itself is headset. That's right. Or, or awareness. Pure awareness. So awareness and consciousness are different. Yeah, so, well, um, there is a distinction to be made, and I, I'm not going to be sort of hard-nosed about the particular words, but you could have a specific conscious experience, like the experience of green, but you could, and that would be conscious, a kind of conscious experience, that would be a kind of a consciousness. But you could also talk about awareness without any content at all. I'm just aware of awareness. Mm. But even that's saying too much. I'm just aware. So I'm not aware of dawn. I'm not aware of where I live. I'm not aware. I'm just, I'm just aware. And when, when people meditate and they go into very, very deep levels of meditation where they really let go of all thoughts, then in some sense, yourself dies. Well, is dead. I mean, there is no dawn. There is no, I did this degree. There is no, I, I have these, that's gone. And, and yet, in some sense, some, nothing essential is gone. Nothing essential left. That's just a story. The essential thing is the, the awareness. And the, the, the real joy of being is the awareness itself. The story is a nice add-on, it's icing on the cake, but it's not essential. The real deep joy is, comes from the pure awareness with, with no content whatsoever. And so in that sense, I, I think of, but, but see, there's part of me that is tied to the story. So that was the part that was scared to death in the hospital. Mm. There's another part of me that, that believes and knows that everything's fine. I'm, I'm awareness without content. That's what I really am at my deepest level. But as long as I'm still clinging to the story of Don, then that is going to die when I die. If I don't choose to die to it while I can choose to die to it, I will be forced to die to it when my body dies. And so, so there are some spiritual teachers like Eckhart Tolle who says, in some sense, I'm already dead. The only thing left is the body. So that, I'm not there, I'm, but, but I, I don't disbelieve, I mean, I disbelieve most of them, but I don't disbelieve some of them, right? I, I, I think that it is possible. In, in the case, for example, of Eckhart Tolle, I think it's highly probable that he's right. I mean, he really has let go and he's utterly fearless about death, and, and I'm not. But I understand in principle why that could be. If I really am not the story and I've really let go of the story of Don, and I'm no longer identified with... So here's how to know if you've really let go of the story. Am I competing with anybody? Is it important to me to be better than someone? To be better known, to have a better whatever, be smarter, have a better degree, whatever it might be. As long as I'm comparing myself with anybody else and trying, you know, or saying I'm worse, I feel inferior. As long as that's going on to me, then I'm, I'm tied to my story and I'll be afraid of death. It's only when I don't care about comparisons anymore that I've really, truly let go. So, so if someone cuts me off on the road when I'm driving, if I'm upset about that, I'm tied to my story. That means I'm not ready to die. So you can just so when you look at the thing, whatever disturbs you, tells you, that's that's the the, the hint. Okay, you're still tied to the apron strings. The baby story, that I'm Don, I was born here, 
I'm struggling to be important because I have such a small, I mean, I'm such this small little thing. I'm, I'm, I'm a little guy inside space-time. I believe that the avatar of me in this headset is everything that I am. I'm clinging to my avatar. And as long as I'm clinging to it, the possibility of losing that avatar is terrifying. So, so I'm there. I'm, I'm not enlightened. I'm, I understand this intellectually. There's something emotional that has to be brought along. It has to be healed or something like that. It's got to be brought along. So, but but this, it's, it all make, it's all a good intellectual story for me, and I'm meditating to have it become a true personal story. But, but what it ends up being is that even, you, you think about it, even your body is just an icon. It's not who you are. If, this, if what we're saying is right, space-time is doomed. If the physicist is right, space-time is doomed. Evolution is right. This is just a headset. This is just an avatar. Then I don't even have brains right now. If you look, you'll render brains. But right now I have no brains because they're not being rendered. So neural activity causes none of my behavior. Brains cause none of our behavior. And yet, we need to study neuroscience. We need more money for neuroscience because that's the part of our interface that is most informative about the software behind space-time. Mm. So if we want to understand the software behind space-time, we're going to have to study the complex thing that we call the brain, which is just the projection of this deeper software. That is the best projection that we've got. So neuroscience is far more complicated than we're thinking right now. We see neurons, we think there are neurons. No, 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 no. We see neurons, that's a pointer to a realm far more complicated, probably infinitely more complicated, but fortunately we can look at it in steps. So, so we need more for neurons. So I don't have any brains, but we need to study brains because when we render brains in our headset, that's the most information we're going to have in our headset about the software behind space-time. So, but still, emotionally, we're tied to it. I'm tied to it. Um, and we're wired up to this way. So Piaget, the, a very famous um, child psychologist, um, had uh, talked about what he called um, object permanence. He said that you know, we're wired to, at a certain stage of our life, believe that this object exists and will continue to exist even if no one looks. Object permanence. And you know, he had the example of 18-month-old baby, a 17-month-old baby, you take a doll, put it behind a pillow, and the baby acts as though the doll no longer exists. Mm. But at a certain age, you put the baby, the, the, the doll behind the pillow, now the baby will crawl over and try to get it. Okay, right. so now it's got object permanence. So later studies showed that it came much earlier than Piaget thought, maybe even three or four months. So, so why is it that I have a hard time thinking of my body as an avatar as opposed to a real object that exists? Why am I having a hard... Well, um, it's because I didn't choose to believe that. I was wired up to believe that before I even had reason. So when we believe very, very strongly that these things exist, it's not because we came to a rational conclusion about that. Oh, yeah, I, I thought it through and I know. No, no, no. You believed that when you were four months old. That's why you believe it. And, and it's no deeper than that. You never, we've just never challenged it. That's the glory of science. It goes back. It can challenge things that we believe since we were three months old. And it can show us that we were wrong. That's the power of science. 
And then the power of science is also to tell us the limits of science. Because what science tells us, with Gödel's incompleteness theorem, is there is no theory of everything. But that doesn't mean that we should just do whatever we wish and, and think what random thoughts we want. No, there is, we're rewarded by thinking precisely and also humbly. Precisely to get as far as our current framework will go, and then humbly to realize that it's just a framework and there's a new one beyond. But that will also be rigorous. Mm. And that will also be rigorous. So it's, it's really, it's not going into, you know, just whatever you want. You know, it's, it's not like a postmodernist kind of... And again, I don't want to give a, a wrong impression. I think there's a lot of interesting people that have done really brilliant work in postmodernism. But, but the, the, I'll put it this way, the, the gist of it that some people get, that do whatever you want, it doesn't matter, the, the logic doesn't really re require... I think that that's just plain wrong. I, I really like reason because it tells the limits of itself. Mm. So. I love that. Where can people follow you? Uh, I have a Twitter, Donald D. Hoffman. So D-O-N-A-L-D-D-H-O-F-F-M-A-N. Um, you know, that's my Twitter handle. And, and I usually, every time I have a talk, I'll, I'll post a link to it, a new paper, I'll post a link, or a new article that I think is really interesting on this stuff, I'll post a link. Mm. Yeah. It's a great feed. I've definitely enjoyed it. Oh, you have? Okay. Great. For sure. And speaking of things you guys will enjoy, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care. Peace.